Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 81 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. You get these big name extended interview shows every Monday, and a short four or five minute daily episodes are released Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. And I thank you, as always, for hitting play. It's been a busy week since episode 80, featuring a great chat with Sex Pistols' Glenn Matlock. A few more interviews in the can for coming episodes, the daily This Day Rock shows, and of course, the full album February. It's in full swing. If you've missed this, then basically every day this month I'm going to listen to an album in full, in the order it was intended, but not the classic albums. I'm talking about long-lost, forgotten records, ones that should have got more attention. I asked you to nominate the albums, and you duly delivered. And this week started with Pink Floyd's David Gilmore's solo record, his first one, his debut one. Things were notched right up on the second with Big Country's The Buffalo Skinners record. This is one from the 90s I'd never heard before, and it's bloody brilliant, to be honest with you. If you like uh, full-on hard rock, then you have to give this a listen. Uh, on the third, it was a bit of a more mellow affair, all about Eve's self-titled debut release, which contains the beautiful Martha's Harbour song. I love that one. And as I record this on the fourth, today's record is Marauder by Blackfoot, which I can't wait to dive into. Now, I post all of these on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on YouTube. And you can see that on the subscriptions tab on YouTube, if you just open your app. And it's great to see so many people listening along, joining in and commenting on social media with their thoughts. Uh, I'll list a few. Jerry Bozzi, Pink Floyd Collectors, The Music Box on YouTube, uh, Joe Kay, Adam Hamilton, Mark Hay, Timothy Lord, John Clark, Ned Itchum, Richard Metcalf, Gordon Skinner, Rob Stainton, Tracy Hazelton, Eric Campbell, Mark Schultz and Doris Ruby. Huge thanks for getting involved, everybody. You know I love hearing from everyone who gets in touch, so please do join in if you can. You don't have to listen to every single one, but definitely dive into some of them and you'll hopefully discover some great albums that might have passed you by. Right, on to today's show then, and it's another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Two in two weeks for you. Now, this guy's career spans more than 50 years, and his band are back with a new album, and, to be honest, they're constantly touring as well. They hit up over 60 dates in the US last year, and are back there in 2023, and they've got a tour of Europe and the UK this year too. He was part of the British Invasion, but then went on to form another band in the 70s, and had hits with them as well. 
He's uh, later worked with the likes of Phil Collins and Gary Moore, The Who, and interestingly, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I am, of course, talking about Rod Argent from The Zombies and Argent. Now, if you're a fan of The Zombies, you had some huge hits with the likes of Time of the Season and She's Not There, then check out my interviews with Zombies lead singer Colin Blundstone. I've interviewed him twice on Vintage Rock Pod, so definitely worth checking those out as well. Now, in this interview with Rod, we'll talk about the early days, those breakthrough hits for the zombies. We'll speak about Argent and what Rick Wakeman had to say about one of their songs and how Gene Simmons from Kiss tried to claim he wrote a song that Argent originally performed. Hmm. We talk about his time working with The Who and also hear about the new album that's coming our way as well. Now, The Zombies' new release is called Different Game and it's due for worldwide release on March 31st, 2023. There is a single out now, so you can listen to that. It's called Dropped Reeling and Stupid, so definitely do check that out. Right, here you go. Please enjoy my chat with the lovely, fun and entertaining Rod Argent from The Zombies. Exciting news. You've got a new album coming out. We've got the first single, which is out there. You've seen it today. It's fantastic. Um, so we're going to get to that. But obviously, we'll have a little chat about your career first, because it's been an exemplary career, fantastic career. Um, and we'll start at the very beginning. She's not there. I remember speaking to uh, Colin, obviously, your good friend and lead singer with The Zombies. And he was saying that he was amazed that um, She's Not There was probably one of the first songs that you'd ever written. And you were, what, 16, 17 when you wrote that song, and 18, 19 when it went to number one in America. I mean, what was your memory? Of, of of that song and those early days? Well, my memories were that uh, the first song I ever really remember writing, although in very recent years, I realised I'd written one for Jim Rodford, who, who was the founder member of Argent with me and also in the Kinks for many years. Um, but uh, uh, he had a band called The Blue Toes. He was four years older than me. Uh, and he asked me to write a song for them. And unbelievably, when I was about... 15 i did and i completely forgotten that song but many many years later um he he found i i I never realized this he'd actually recorded it uh his manager had paid for a session at olympic studios and this this was only a small semi-pro band and and there was this really nice version of it although it was a very derivative song i have to say derivative of of the the first beatles things that had just come out you know really um but um, but anyway, uh, that's a part. The very first song I wrote was called "It's All Right with Me," and we 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 did we did that as one of the songs on um, the Hearts Beat competition, which was the the contest that we won that led to our first Decca recording contract. Um, <laughs> and and Dick Rowe knocked on the door and 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 said, "I we you know I'd like to sign you for a a single thing," which was which was wonderful. But um, uh, but then we were going to record summertime. I mean, I, I hadn't thought of writing anything and, and neither of Chris White actually. Um, but uh, the guy that we got to produce this for the first session said, you know, you could always write something yourselves. And, and, <laughs> and that's all he said. And everybody forgot about it. And uh, I went away and wrote, she's not there. And with the naivety and ignorance of youth that you only have once because you don't know any of the pitfalls that can happen. I thought, yeah, I can write a song and, it, and, it, and it'll be a hit and uh, it'll, we'll record it and it'll sound great. Connie will sound great singing it. We'll, we'll bang some lovely harmonies on it. And unbelievably, it all happened. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I wasn't surprised. It, it, I, you know, we were knocked out. 
but it went to, it became the first record after the Beatles um, to get to number one in the States with a self-written song. We actually even made the nine o'clock news. I was I always remember phoning home, which was a big deal in those days from America. Um, and my mother said, you've just been on the nine o'clock news. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know? but, but she said, no, 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 it, you know, you're OK. It's uh, you know, and she she's said that they related the story to that. And that was number one in Cashbox and number two, I think, in Billboard. But um, there you go. So it was a dream start. I mean, we were eight, we would I was 18 when I wrote it and the record came out. I was 19 when it reached number one in the states and so was colin we, we, we're just 10 days apart mm. um in in terms of birthdays so it, it was an absolute dream but very soon reality came in when things weren't uh so successful i mean although our second record in the states was a top five record as well that was tell or no which um i think we had absolutely the wrong record out over here but we were we were badly managed in many ways and and in the uk um, but anyway, that's another story entirely. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, not talking about management, but um, the producers that you worked with. I heard a story you said once where you weren't even allowed in the the mix of it. You weren't allowed to see what was going on or hear what was going on. So at times you were recording something you thought sounded fantastic and you'd come back and it'd sound completely different. Absolutely. We would often do demos ourselves and they were rough, but they had all the essentials of balance and and often some very rich harmonies and all those rich harmonies got thrown away on the on the final production we sang them but instead of being equal they were sort of certain lines were pushed well into mm-hmm. the background and it only sounded like there was some scrappy stuff going on and and it was driving us crazy and that's why we recorded odyssey and oracle actually because uh, chris and i it was in the air i mean colin and i never quite agree on this but it was in the air that we were that we might split up because we were based so much in the uk mm-hmm. and we were handled so badly in the uk that we'd only ever had one uh, hit single over here although around the world we had many more hits um but um it was just you know we thought we can't you know we've made so many demos that we like um that we have to try and produce an album ourselves didn't know if we could do it but we thought at least we get our own ideas down of how the songs should sound um and it might not work but but we loved the experience we had an absolute ball um and we loved the album when it was finished but as we were completely based in the UK, um, the only guy that went out on a limb was Kenny Everett, actually. Yes, um, yes. And I remember doing um, a couple of interviews with him and he just loved it. Um, uh, but nobody else sort of mentioned it and, it and it just got lost. And we thought, OK, well, that's it. But at least we made something that we like. Indeed. Um, yeah. I was going to say quickly, though, uh, you mentioned Kenny Everett. There's a, there's a famous interview with yourselves with Kenny and um, and you talk about splitting up. And he says, but the album's not even out yet. Why, why are you splitting up before the album's even released? <laughs> uh, Cat Stevens was on that programme. I, I remember that well, <laughs> that particular interview. And and Kenny played um, A Rose for Emily, which is um, yes. a, a very sort of wistful ballad on the album. Uh, and Cat Stevens said, God, I love that song, you know. And we thought, oh, that's lovely. You know, it's really, really nice. But um, by that time, our guitarist was just about to get married. And he said, I've got no money, mm-hmm. you know, because again, I know I keep coming back to this, but we were, we were stiffed out of, um, I mean, we, we'd had, We'd had uh, a couple of huge hit records in the in the states, uh, headline tours, um, and and we never made a penny out of live work. I mean, I, I, 
Chris and I were lucky because we actually had honest publishers and that was really rare in those days. So everything that happened around the world was was getting paid to us in in terms of the writing fees. Um, so we were fine. Chris and I were fine. But the rest of the guys, you know, just didn't have any money. And that was one of the main reasons why why we split up. It wasn't a falling out or anything like that. And I remember again speaking to Colin, Colin talking about the album at the time. It was um it was on, it got no attention really, didn't it? It didn't really attract an awful lot at the time. But you did have a guy in the United States, a DJ over there, yeah. a lone DJ. I think it was in it was in Idaho or something like that, who who loved the song. Um and he, he always wanted to play Time of the Season and he kind of got the traction for that song for you, didn't he? He really did. Yeah, it was in Boise, Idaho. Um and he's only just uh, passed away actually in the last a couple of years, I think, or two or three years. Um, but he was responsible for it because um, in the way that things could happen in those days, things could happen very slowly. Um, and because he was the only guy playing it, um, it it started to be a big hit in Boise. <laughs> and, then, and then like somebody throwing a stone into a pond, the ripples started to go outwards and it suddenly caught fire and zoomed up the charts. Um, and, and, it, and that was a real knockout. But I'd already started to form Argent by that time. And Chris and I were joint producers of, of Argent and joint writers. So we, we didn't want to just throw all that away. Um, we never wanted to look back, actually. I mean, that's been, a, that's been something over all our career, the, the whole of our careers, actually. We've always, we've always done things for real. We've always done things because we wanted to write uh, new stuff and get excited by it. Um, and, and that's the thing that keeps you... Um, in, in whatever way we are uh, sort of energetic and vital, that's what keeps you like that, you know, to, to keep those same goals in mind. And, and I always love writing songs. And then I'll always get Colin round, first of all, and it'll be Colin and me that go through the songs and work it out and, you know, check that um, I've got exactly the right key for him. But um, I know his voice so well. Um, <laughs> and and um, he sings everything in the original keys, and I do too. Um, you know, so so that that's lovely, and I know you've you've heard the new single, and you, you know you can tell that that he's still singing way up there, and and with energy and conviction, you know. So it's 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 really a lovely thing to still have. Absolutely. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. 
And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. So you mentioned there you were moving on to Argent. We'll just quickly move on to Argent. I mean, again, another big hit, Hold Your Head Up. And it was a kind of almost similar kind of story to time of the season where you had a lone DJ who was loving the song and he gets to play it every week. And again, the ripple effect it happened with that song as well, didn't it? It really did. That was Alan Freeman. And the thing was, in those days, it became very unfashionable to have singles. And, you know, you're either an album band or, or you know, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't mix that with singles generally, just for a short, uh, you know, two or three years, it was like that. And um, I was so knocked out because we didn't plan it to be a single. It was supposed to be part of an album. And, and as always, we were late and the tour had started and the album wasn't ready. So the record company said, well, we've got to put out um, an EP. And they put an EP out. And one side of the EP was um, the long version of Hold Your Head Up, uh, which had a three-minute organ solo or something like that in the middle <laughs> of it, which actually, um, I have to say, in the last few years, it completely knocked me out. One Christmas, uh, I was at um, my brother-in-law's place, who um, is actually Paul McCartney's uh, recording engineer. Um, and suddenly on a Johnny Walker show, um, he had Rick Waitman being interviewed. And he said, you've got to you got, choose a long track uh, that you love. And he said, well, I, I want you to play the long version of Hold Your Head Up. He said that, and he actually said, I, I can't believe he said this, but he actually said, um, that's the greatest organ solo on any record. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, it, it made my Christmas, I tell you. Um, <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> but, but the thing was, uh, none, of the, none of the radio stations would play it over here, uh, except for Alan Freeman. He had a show on a Saturday, and every week he played it, and it stubbornly kept selling enough to keep it just outside the top <laughs> 50, I, I think it was. It might have been the top 30, but just outside the top 50. Uh, and then we went to Holland for a tour, and while we were over there, the record company, very wisely in, in commercial terms, just chopped out the whole organ solo. Um, and uh, and it became a three-minute or 3.30 song or something like that. Um, and um, it immediately started bubbling under uh, you know, whatever the next hurdle was, the 30 or the 20. And, and we got a Top of the Pops. We did Top of the Pops. And the next day, we were going to a gig and, and and there was this huge holdup. And I remember saying to Russ, it's the new Bond film now. You know, this, 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 you know, this, this, you know this, this is such a delay here, you know. And then, look, there's a queue around the block, you know. Uh, what's going on? And and it was for us, you know, and uh, and and it, it that it was away then, and it was it became a top five records, and, and that was lovely. Yes, indeed, indeed, and uh, just another song to pick up on as well. Obviously, God gave rock and roll to you, a top twenty hit for you guys over here in the UK, big hit in nineteen seventy three. Yeah. How did you feel then when you heard um, Kiss's version of it in the early nineties? I mean, what did you make of their version? Um, well, when I first heard it, I thought it was as straight a copy as you could imagine, ex except 
um, without all the, the cascading harmonies at the end, because uh, they didn't put any of that in. Um, but um, uh, qu- uh, many years later, I heard Gene Simmons on a, a children's show saying, here's a song I wrote. And, and he, <laughs> he changed he changed one couplet, the, the couplet that Russ had written about love Cliff Richard, but please don't tease. He said, no one in America knows who that is, so I'm going to change the couplet. And Russ said, yeah, fine. Um, but then he, he claimed that he'd written the song, <laughs> which is a bit naughty. My word, my word indeed. Um, now, you've worked on many other projects as well, obviously, as well as Argent and the Zombies. You've done uh, music for TV shows. You've worked with the likes of... Um, Gary Moore and Phil Collins and people like that. But um, what I want to ask you about is The Who. Now, you played on one of their absolute classic songs, uh, Who Are You? How did all that come about? It came about because I'd just done an album as a session player for um, Roger Daltrey. And I think it was one of the boys, but do you know what? I can't remember if it's that one or the next one. But anyway, um, he said to Pete, I think we should get Rod on the, on, on the next album. And I mean... Such a wonderful, talented band, absolutely marvellous. And um, I actually played on three tracks on the album, although I'm only credited on two. Uh, and my favourite personal contribution was on um, Love Is Coming Down. That's me playing piano on that. But um, I didn't get credit for that. I mean, <laughs> but what actually happened, um, they had a month assigned for the album and I committed to that. But I'd already then committed to work with... Um, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, project with his his uh, brother Julian Lloyd Webber on cello and Gary Moore and John Heisman uh, and Barbara Thompson um, and at the end of that that month I mean the, the Who never spent a long time on any of the tracks record, actually mm-hmm. recording when they actually got into the studio uh, I remember Who Are You uh, at least my my part in it and 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 the, and the whole backing track etc maybe not the lead vocal i don't know although roger was singing um it happened in about four hours i mean it, and that and that was the track but they were going through a lot of political things at the time um and they were up having meetings all day long uh for quite a lot of the time i'm, I'm not criticizing um i didn't mind being there but at the end of the month, I, I, I said to Pete, I'm sorry, I, I've got to finish now because I'm committed to do this, this album with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He said, well, which album would you rather do? I said, it's not, it's not a, a, any sort of question of that. I've committed to do it. You know, so I'm not going to just pull out and not do it. And, and so I was only on those three tracks. And in the end, I only got credited for two. But as I said, I was on three. Oh. And what do you remember about working with the Who? I mean, what were the guys like in the studio to work with when you actually got them in the studio? They were absolutely lovely and very talented, really committed. Um, I remember Keith Moon was unbelievably was always the person who was there first in the day on time. All right, he would always get there, um, whatever the start time was. Maybe it was eleven o'clock. I mean, I, it was in South London at Ramport. I had to come all the way from St. Albans and the traffic was pretty bad. So I think it was 11 o'clock and I'd get there and then Keith would be there and he'd be really quiet and sober. And th- th- on about the third day, he said to me, oh, there's nobody here yet. He said, um, do you fancy popping around down the road, you know, around the corner for a drink? And, and he said, and I said, yeah, okay. And so I, I, I started to make, make off and he said i've just got to avoid my minders he said i can't stand the fact that they're coming with me everywhere <laughs> and anyway we walked into this really rough pub and and as we walked 
by this huge guy, you know, um, playing pool. He was just about to take a shot and, and Keith nudged his arm and went, oh, sorry, mate. Um, and the guy, you know, looked at him. And I thought, it's going to be trouble here very soon. So I said, oh, Keith, I just remembered I've got to make a phone call. And I went, <laughs> I went back and then he turned up uh, a couple of hours later um, you know, really three sheets to the win. And and um and he was up on his drum rostrum because he used to record on a drum rostrum, a really high drum rostrum in in, in the studio. And as I walked into the studio, there was a hail of drumsticks being thrown at me. <laughs> I thought, what's happened? <laughs> but he was a lovely guy though, really lovely, and, and and everybody was. It was very enjoyable, but um a bit of a fractured experience, you know. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. Honestly, I could sit and listen to stories like these all day, Rod. But the reason you're here is to talk about the, the brand new album you've got out with the zombies. Um, different game. Um, it's a it's a interesting looking album cover. The artwork to it and everything like that. Um, the van being towed away in the desert. Give us a quick story behind that uh, album cover first. Well, that was a, a photo that I took um, because it it was a yeah. It just shows you what life on the road is really. Like sometimes, <laughs> yeah. because we were traveling across the Arizona desert. Um, we were about uh, 15 miles outside Phoenix, um, and the temperature was probably about 107, 108. It might even have been more. Um, and uh, suddenly the air conditioning broke down, and we traveled uh, actually two hours before that, it, it had broken down. And, and they said, Well, we'll be in. We'll be in wherever it was was we were going in about three hours. So, you know, we've got no choice really. We're going to have to. So we stopped at the, the one of the last stops that we could, bought a load of ice because there was no, there was no <laughs> other way of of doing it. Um, and, and and we carried on, and everyone started to really feel in distress. Um, and then the engine caught fire, and it was something mm-hmm. to do with a. a an air conditioning fault or, you know, whatever. And that then eventually caused the engine to catch fire. So we had to stop by the side of the road, try and get help, which was two hours away. We managed to get someone to come out who agreed to come out with a different van and tow that that one away. Um, I took a picture, which I thought was really surreal because the light in the desert and, and the mountains that you could see in the background um, and, and the fact, the reality of what can happen when you're touring. And, and as the light was fading, um, the, the sort of red glow from the, the van and it being put onto the um, towing machine. Um, and then at the same time, the way people were looking at the left and, and the sort of atmosphere of the photo looked to me a bit like E.T., you know, when people were waiting for the thing. And I thought, this is a stunning picture, you know, and I took it. And, and it, became, it became the, the, the album cover. And the thing is, I'd already uh, – the, the words to Different Game are not based on that, um, but it fitted absolutely beautifully because it, it is a different game to what people sometimes imagine you know the actual reality of of touring and the tedium that's involved um getting from one place to another particularly in america this is what some people don't realize you know they think it's just going on stage for a couple of hours and that's all you do but it's everything that surrounds it and and, and they're they're hard days i'm not complaining i mean the actual playing on stage is fantastic and rejuvenating and that's that's wonderful all the bits that surround it are a different game to what people sometimes imagine 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think I spoke to Fito Della Parra recently from uh, Canned Heat, and he was saying that they don't charge to play music on stage. They charge for all the inconvenience around it, the travelling, the, the being away yeah. from family, that sort of thing. That's the way he looks at it anyway. Quite interesting. In there. Um, so yeah, different game. It's going to be released at the end of March. March 31st, it's coming out. As we said, the, the first single's out now. You can see the video on YouTube. It's got uh, a really nice video to it with the lyrics and everything up on the screen. That's called Dropped Reeling and Stupid. So let's start with that song. Um, you and Colin, I believe, trade vocals on this one as well, don't you? It's a, re- a real nice contrast. Tell us about that. We do. And and it's something we used to do in the old days. And, and, and it just felt natural to do it uh, this time. And then then join in unison in, in, in places. And, and then there is some harmony as well with Colin and me singing in harmony. And, and it's something I'd like to do more of, actually, because we, we used to do that in the old days. And, and I always liked that. I like the, the spark of, you know, one against the other. Um, we had a song on one of the early uh, albums of this incarnation, uh, and it was called um, South, Side of the, South Side of the Street, I think, and where we did that on that and I, I enjoyed that as well so um it just felt natural really and and it's one of the i mean on the album we, we we've tried to the one thing i i dislike sometimes is when if you like in inverted commas vintage groups um make new albums they're sometimes toned down they, they sometimes feel a bit less energetic or committed than than some of the earlier albums. I really did not want that. Um, And so I thought it was really important that we had on the album at least three or four real rockers um, or or things that have lots of energy and and drive, you know, and commitment. Um, And then you can do the beautiful ballads and, and it's a really... It's a really nice contrast then. And and you put just as much energy into those bows in a different way in the sort of intensity and concentration. But the 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 contrast is just is really nice then. And 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 drop reeling. We we wanted to record the album very much in as live a way as possible. So um I've got this great little studio. It's only small, but it was actually designed unbelievably by John Flynn, who did the Abbey Road control rooms um, and the sound in there. And it's only just set up for me, which means that we can all work together in it. Um, there's, I don't know if you can see in that room. That's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. the live room. That's where I've got the organ. That's where the drums are set up. And then um, I've got all my keyboards over here. But anyway, uh, I've got lines laid into the house as well. So um, there are some, uh, I, I did some string writing on the album as well um, for a, a couple of the ballads. Um, and, we recorded the strings in the, in the house. So it was very much almost like we did uh, Odyssey and Oracle where we were in charge of how things sounded and how they came out. Um, you know, and that was important. And, but we wanted to do it as live a way as possible. So during the pandemic, we had to stop. Um, but rather than just make the album in, in the way we would then have had to, which was do it in people's different studios and sending off the tracks, put your part on, put your part on. We wanted that thing where musicians bounce off each other as they're playing and, and that we react to Colin as he's singing. Colin would always do a guide vocal and some of the guide vocals, certainly on Drop Reeling, uh, the guide vocal turned out to be the lead vocal on that. Um, and And some of the solos, we initially thought we'd revisit, but we didn't on, on, on most of them. They became, so it was as close to being on stage and, and capturing in the old days, that was the only way you could do things. In the old days, it was all about capturing that thing that was just 
from what, the take where the sum is sort of greater than the parts, if you like, um, because something happens and, and, and there's a little bit of magic that just happens when everything happens at once and people get it all right. And, and, it, and that's when it feels nicest to play, actually. And we wanted to go back to that and and largely on the album we did absolutely fantastic and as we said different game it's out on march the 31st so everyone can look forward to to getting their hands on that and i'm sure there's loads of different ways nowadays to, to get hold of it it's not just streaming but you can actually get the physical copies and lps and things like that so if people want to pre-order is that available to, to, to do so now yes uh, apparently it is um you'd have to look on one of our websites or facebook pages or something because it's all handled by our american management um but Absolutely, we can, you know, people can pre-order. Fantastic. It would be wonderful because the last album we did, um, actually, it actually charted in the Billboard Top 100 album sales, um, which was a knockout. It was only there for a couple of weeks, but nevertheless, it was there, you know, and uh, and that was great. And and I'm hoping for that this time as well, if we possibly can. I I do think personally, um, I know it's our, it's our new album and everything, but I personally think it's the best album we've done since Honesty and Oracle. Um, so, I, you know, I really hope you agree when you, when you hear it. But also, the other thing is you're talking about the different formats. Um, uh, we, we took a, a great deal of trouble to get the people we wanted to master it. Um, we chose Randy Merrill uh, in Sterling Sound in, in New York um, because I particularly like the mastered sound on the McCartney album, Egypt Station. Um, and and he did that. Um, but also the, the the vinyl master, someone from the same studio, because what they do, I don't know if you know technically, but they, they take the original master, but for vinyl, you have to bring different things into play because of, of, of the mechanical way of, of reproducing you can't have quite as much bass or or you have to look at it in a slightly different way you know that technical things i was knocked out with the the, the vinyl pressing absolutely knocked out i've just i've just we just okayed it before uh, it went started to go into manufacture. Um, so I'm really, really pleased on all counts. Thank you so much for all your time you, you've given us today, Rod. I could chat with you for, for hours and hours still. But uh, uh, best of luck with the new album when it comes out the end of March and uh, hopefully see you on the road. Thank you so much. And a huge thank you to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Rod Argent for joining me. Please do pre-order the new record and look for tickets for the live shows as well. I think the announcement in this past week from Ozzy Osbourne's really struck home with me about him not being able to tour again. And you kind of add that up with the sad loss of the likes of Jeff Beck and David Crosby recently. Um, you kind of realise that we're losing legends that made rock and roll. Uh, a big shout out to Joe Kay from Play That Rock and Roll podcast for posting a quote from author Stephen Hyden, who said that we are now in the twilight of the gods. Um, when you think about these incredible superheroes of ours, some of them kind of feel like they've been around forever, don't they? They're sadly kind of reaching a point that we're all dreading. So please don't hold off. I mean, support these guys while you can. Buy their records. Go to the shows. Is You never know. It might be the last chance you get to see them. Sorry for getting a bit morbid there, but it is kind of true, isn't it? Right, on to uh, brighter things then. It's the time of the show where we look at the top fives. And because I've already done my top five songs from the zombies, and you'll have to check out episode four to hear that top five, this week I'm going to do my favourite five songs from the band Argent. Now, last week, thanks to my interview with Glenn Matlock, I did my favourite five songs from the Sex Pistols. Obviously, there's not a huge amount of material to work with, but uh, my favourite of theirs is Pretty Vacant. So thanks to you people who contributed comments on this, including Michelle Verhus, who went with the classic God Save the Queen, of course, and uh, Patrick O'Brien, who said that the controversial song Bodies was his favourite. 
Right, let's see what you make of this choice this week then. My favourite five songs from the band, Argent. At five is a song that's better known for the Three Dog Night version, but it was written by Ross Ballard in Argent. This track was on the band's debut album from 1970. At number five is Liar. At number four is a track from their big album, all together now from 1972. This track peaked at number 34 in the UK. At number four is Tragedy. And number three is a song from the band's fifth studio album, Nexus. It's another Ross Ballard composition and opens side two on the LP. And number three is Thunder and Lightning. Number two comes from the 1973 album In Deep. It's the main single and opening track. It went top 20 here in the UK, but was better known for the Kiss version in America. And number two is God Gave Rock and Roll to You. And at number one is the big song, the group's big hit. Reached number five in the UK, the US and in Canada in 1972. It's a rock classic and it's been covered by a whole host of acts from Uriah Heep to Mr Big and Steppenwolf to Mother Love Bone. And they all do it justice. My favourite song of theirs, my number one song from Argent is Hold Your Head Up. Hold your head up. So there you go, my top five songs from Argent. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. What's your favourite track of theirs? Message me on the social media platforms or you can email me vintagerockpod at gmail.com and of course, I'll give you a shout out on next week's big interview show. And remember to keep checking out the Vintage Rock Pod social media channels for the full album February stuff. See what records we're listening to each day. Join in, leave your comments. Everyone's welcome. It's a great way to bring music fans together and to try and unearth some lost classics and some forgotten gems. Check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or on YouTube on the subscription or the community tab to see all those posts. And while I've got you a couple more things that don't cost a penny, I'd love you to do to help Vintage Rock Pod. One is to leave a review on the podcast app that you use. Apple Podcasts is clearly the most popular amongst you. You can hit the five star button on there. And if you're feeling very kind, leave a few words in the review as well. It really helps with the algorithms and things like that. It gets the podcast a bigger exposure. On Spotify, you can also leave five stars now and things like that. And there's other ones as well, like Podcast Addict and Good Pods and all that sort of stuff. Just always leave a five star rating. It makes a big difference. You can do it now while you've got your phone with you. Go on, do it. Another thing you can do, oh, is tell a friend. Uh, Word of mouth is the most effective way of growing podcasts. It's proven, so don't keep it to yourself. Tell everybody about this amazing podcast that you listen to. It's called Vintage Rock Pod. And thirdly, hit like on the posts on social media. Again, these pesky computer things, if you don't engage with a page, then you stop seeing their posts, whether you like it or not. A simple thumbs up on Facebook or on YouTube, a love heart on Twitter or whatever it is on Instagram, it makes a big difference. So there you go. Three ways to help Vintage Rock Pod all free, something you can do dead easily, so no excuses. Well, that's it for me and this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes that come out every single day. 
So with that, I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. So until then, take care. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.